Under the sermon title this evening, Yahweh will show us his steadfast love and salvation, we come to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. And you know that it says here, and this is the second psalm in a row that tells us it is to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And you remember from Psalm 84 that I told you that when it says in that particular passage about being a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord and that it is not a menial task, let me show you that before we get to Psalm 85. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 26. 1 Chronicles chapter 26. This will give you not only some information about the sons of Korah, but will also give you a sense of the sons of Korah and their duties because they were doorkeepers. First Chronicles 26. Now, in addition, of course, to their being a troop of singers, song leaders, the sons of Korah, they were also gatekeepers or doorkeepers. In First Chronicles 26, verse 1, It says this, as for the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Korahites, and then it gives you a a list of many of the sons of Korah by name, all the way down and through verse 19. And as it does that, it also gives a sense of some of their duties Notice, for instance, it says in verse 6, also to his son Shemaiah were sons born who were rulers in their father's houses, for they were men of great ability. And then if you go down to verse 12, it says these divisions of the gatekeepers corresponding to their chief men had duties, just as their brothers did ministering, there it is, in the house of the Lord. And they cast lots by father's houses, small and great alike, for their gates. The lot for the east fell to Shelemiah. They cast lots also for his son Zechariah, a shrewd counselor. And his lot came out for the north. Obed-Edom's came out for the south, and to his sons was allotted the gatehouse. For Shupim and Hosa, it came out for the west, at the gate of Shalathesh, on the road that goes up. Watch corresponded to watch. See, they were watchers at the doors, at the gates. On the east, there were six each day, And on the north, four each day, on the south, four each day, as well as two and two at the gatehouse. And for the colonnade on the west, there were four at the road and two at the colonnade. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the Korahites and the sons of Merari. So that just gives you a little bit of indication that this was a very noble thing, a very noble task. This wasn't a a menial thing. This was with great integrity and great skill. These were watchers at the gates. And so these are the sons of Korah. And 
they were obviously helping also with these psalms, particularly, and Psalm 85 is as follows. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now, we don't know exactly what the date is that this psalm was written, nor do we know the time frame in which they, that is, the children of Israel, were called upon to sing this song. Now, of course, once it was penned, they were to sing it in perpetuity, of course, but we don't know exactly when it started. We don't know the setting. Now, perhaps... It has been speculated, and Alan Ross, who's a very able commentator of the book of Psalms, theorizes that potentially it was after this psalm had been written to be sung after the captivity in Babylon. Possibly, which of course was in 536 B.C., but possibly this construction of the psalm might have been during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which would have been about 450 to 400 B.C. And these would have been the difficult days between the promise of God in this psalm and the ongoing need for its fulfillment. Because remember, not everything that happens to us, even in our Christian life, is granted to us in the moment. We have blessings initially, but we need more blessings later. We have salvation now, and we have a need for greater salvation, that is our sanctification, in the everyday portions of our lives. And so these are psalms that, as I explain it to you tonight, I think you'll find out exactly what I'm referring to here. This is an amazing, amazing psalm because it reminds me so much of an evangelistic psalm. I've mentioned that before. What I mean by that is this is a psalm that's calling the nation of Israel back to salvation. It's calling them to a place of renewal. It's calling them to see God for who he is and for their need to confess their sin. Now, of course, the whole history of Israel is a constant need for the confession of sin. But then again, so is our Christian life. 
It's a constant need for the confession of sin and for repentance and for God to show and demonstrate His love for us daily, as it were. And when I break up this psalm in its constituent parts, I see three very clear lines. Number one, I see verses 1 and 3 as a unit. Verses 1, 2, and 3 as a unit. And then secondly, I see verses 4 through 7 as another unit or another stanza, as it were, because this is a song, of course. And then lastly, verses 8 to 13, it's one longer unit or stanza or section of this psalm, and they all are stanzas or sections that tell us a story that gives us a sense of who God is and what God expects of Israel and Israel's necessary response. So let's go through this psalm. I think you'll see it as we go along. Let's talk about this first unit or section. I say it is, verses 1, 2, and 3, something like this. God shows or God demonstrates his love for sinners. God shows, God demonstrates his love for sinners. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verses 1, 2, and 3 with me. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Jacob meaning Israel, of course. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now this is obviously a context that has to do with sin. It's very, very clear. In fact, look at the first part of verse 1. You were favorable. Now, of course, it's talking about being favorable to the land, the land of Israel. But don't be alarmed about that. That's not a problem because, remember, the people and the land were sometimes so indistinguishable that when the land is being referred to, it's the land of the people. And when the people are being referred to, it's the people of the land. And remember, even avam, uh, the word for Adam in Hebrew, means red. And it's the red dirt. It's the idea of God making mankind out of the dust of the earth. And there's an amazing relationship between land and people. You read the Old Testament, uh, any portion of it, and you're almost always finding that when the people are in abject sin, when they are disobedient to Yahweh and they need to be confronted in their sin, God sometimes also gives them a sense of how not only their sin is affecting their own lives, but how their sin is affecting the physical land upon which they're walking. Pestilence, famine, disease, weather-related phenomenon. Sometimes God 
provides those things or inflicts those things on the people so that they will understand it's not just your sin that has these evil consequences, your own disease of your body, but perhaps even an infliction of disease and famine upon the land itself. So when it says here, you were favorable to your land, just think of this. God shows or God demonstrates his love for sinners by healing their land, by giving them prosperity. That's that idea of being favorable. Lord, Yahweh, you were favorable to your land. And then look at the latter part of verse 1. You restored the fortunes of Jacob or Israel. Now remember, as I said, if the setting of this psalm is sometime after the Babylonian captivity, they've come back into their land, their land has been favorably given back to them by the Lord himself, and now perhaps there are a couple of hundred years, perhaps, now that they've been back in their land, and they've seen the blessing of the Lord, and the Lord is reminding them about it. You restored the fortunes of Jacob, and you were favorable to your land. And then verse 2, look at the first part of that. You forgave the iniquity of your people. And then the latter part of verse 2, you covered all their sin. And then, of course, it gives us a selah. We are supposed to pause It's like a musical interlude. We're supposed to think about the fact that God has forgiven the iniquity of his people. He's covered all their sin. Verse 3 goes on to say, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned. You turned from your own infliction of wrath from your hot anger. And don't miss that, hot anger. You might say it's the hottest of hot anger. Now this is this is an amazing stanza here. It's amazing because it's talking about what God has done for us also, right? Through Jesus Christ, God has forgiven us our sin. He has given us favorability. He's giving us restoration. He is giving us forgiveness. He is giving us atonement or covering. He has withdrawn his almighty wrath upon us where surely we would die, we would be incinerated by such wrath, and he's turned from us his hot anger. Now, when I read that, I said to myself, that's exactly what Romans 5.8 says. Turn in your Bibles over to Romans 5.8. I don't know and would probably doubt myself that this was what Paul was thinking, this very psalm, when he penned the book of Romans. I'm not saying that, of course, but I am saying it has some striking parallels. For instance, look at chapter 5 of Romans, verse 6. Think about sin in terms of weakness, lack of strength. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, listen to this, but God shows or demonstrates, this is where I received my outline point, for God shows, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So there is wrath that's being referred to here in Romans 5, and there is wrath being referred to here in Psalm 85. And it's so interesting to me that when you're talking about sin and sinners and their need of forgiveness and their need of atonement and their need of having God withdraw his wrath from them through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and turning from his hot anger because he's a holy God and he has nothing but antithope, a hot anger against all of those who flout their, their sin in his face. We're, we're in need of condemnation. We deserve it. Everyone who sins is deserving of sin's consequences, which is death. And save the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man, every single other person in the world is in the category of sinner. Romans 5 is a virtual divine commentary on Psalm 85. And I want you to see those words again and let them seal deeply inside your heart favorable, restored, forgave, covered, withdrew your, your wrath, turned from your hot anger. That's what God did for you through Christ. Let that continue to be your siren song of praise to God for the forgiveness of sins. And by the way, Look over also at another psalm, Psalm 32. And you will see this. Some of the same Hebrew words. Now, of course, you don't see them in Hebrew, but you see them here in English. Restored, forgave, covered. Some of those very Hebrew words are used here in Psalm 32. This is called a penitential psalm. This is one of David's psalms of penitence. He was repenting of his sin, Perhaps it might even been his it might have even been his sin with Bathsheba. Look at Psalm thirty two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Do you see it? The atonement. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That word counts is a, a, an accounting term, and it's a term that's being used here in a way that speaks of atonement again, righteousness, justice. He, he, he should count, his iniqui- count our iniquities against us, but the, the Lord counts no iniquity. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up 
as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, David says in verse 5, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you see those words, covered, cover my iniquity, confess my transgressions, you forgave the iniquity of my sin? Those are some of the very same words of this very psalm, Psalm 85. So it's really easy to say, God shows, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is, this is glorious. This is so hopeful. Can you imagine the number of people who are walking the earth even as we're here tonight, who have the complete and total burden of their sin on their back. They're miserable. And they have no answer. They're going around with all kinds of pleas for a cure. They might be running into the insane asylum or a psychiatric examination. Or they're so mad, they're Uh, They're so vicious in their responses to all of the perceived indignities of life that they're turning to drugs and the lust of alcohol and all of the things that they presume will bring them relief, and they don't, and they don't at all. And a hundred other things besides. You and I know forgiveness, favorability, restoration, a covering, an atonement, a God who is withdrawing his wrath and giving us instead grace and mercy. I don't suppose you'd want to rejoice tonight, would you? I don't suppose you'd want to say whether it's Psalm 32 or Psalm 85, hallelujah, I'm forgiven, I'm set free. Psalm 85 is a paean of praise because God shows, he demonstrates his love for sinners. Number two, number two, sinners in this second stanza, our second outline point, sinners must seek God's way of salvation. I mean, it only stands to reason that if God's showing, if he's demonstrating his love for sinners, then sinners must seek God's way of salvation. In other words, yes, God is the one who offers such a salvation, and sinners must seek God's way of salvation. Do you see it back in Romans chapter 5? That verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were under the wrath of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved 
by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, the only way to salvation is God's way. God's plan, God's demonstration of his love for sinners. The only way for favorability and restoration and forgiveness and a covering and a withdrawing of wrath and a turning from white-hot anger is for the sinner to hold out his hand and say, would you forgive me? Me? Now, I know this seems strange because of what verses 1, 2, and 3 have already said. I mean, listen to it. Lord, you were favorable to your land. That's past tense, isn't it? You restored. You forgave. You covered. You withdrew. You turned. All of that seems contextually to mean this is something that happened before. And it did happen. But it also needs perpetual happenings. Has anybody read the Old Testament where Israel marches forward with the favor of the Lord and the battle is the Lord's and they are so confident in Yahweh and they win battles and they build their fortresses and Jerusalem is the holy city and it is impregnable and no one can defeat us and then they become proud and arrogant And then a band of filthy, wretched sinners, pagans, Gentiles come and they wipe them out. No wonder verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 say what they say. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I mean, if you read those verses in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, you're almost saying, wait a minute, has the psalmist forgotten what he wrote in verses 1, 2, and 3? All these past tense realities... Yes, well, maybe Israel is becoming very cocky, proud, arrogant, sitting on their haunches, resting on their laurels. And perhaps there has been many years between, in the history of Israel, triumph and now trouble. This could very well be the case. You know what reminds me of this? It reminds me of a family, let's say a Christian family, who have generations of faithful, God-fearing family members. A matriarch, patriarch, godly kids. God has been so favorable to them. He's restored them. He's forgiven their iniquity. He's covered their sin. He's withdrawn his wrath. He's turned from his hot anger. And this particular Christian family has seen the sweet fruit of that. And then what might happen in such a Christian family? More generations to come. 
those who are resting on their laurels, those who are fat and sassy, those who are saying, he's our God and he's going to take care of us. And then they become those who go out and flaunt their liberties. They speak of what God has done in their family. And may they, maybe they also arrogantly assume God will continue to do that in their family, even if they themselves, the current generation, do not follow God. That happens all the time. That happens in generations after generations after generations. You look at the history of Israel. You look at all of those who were in the wilderness, and they were led by God, and he led them with the fire and the cloud, and that whole generation, save a few, ended up being totally unfaithful. There are even passages that say that their, their carcasses were strewn all over the wilderness except for those who were 20 and under. The remnant. What did they do? Did they not see their deliverance before their very eyes? Did they not see how Moses was leading them by, by God's own hand? Did, did they become fat and sassy? Did they determine in their hearts that they were forever protected by God from their enemies? You know the history of Israel. They wanted their, their food. They wanted it now. They even said, we think it's actually better that we go back to Egypt. And generations come and generations go. And while there may have been the past tense forgiveness of God in a generation, perhaps now there's a need, according to verses 4 through 7, of restoration again. That's a new generation. Look, you don't get into the kingdom, but what your father did, what your grandfather did, your grandmother, your brother, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, you don't get into the kingdom that way. You have to be faithful yourself. You've got to seek God's way of salvation. You can't, you can't get in on the family plan. It's only one person that can go through the turnstile. It's a narrow way. Matthew 7. Every single sinner has to seek God's way of salvation. I mean, the idea of these verses, verses 4 through 7, is that these verses correspond to what we might call the perpetual need for a whole life of repentance and God's reviving his people. It's a daily occurrence, isn't it? You can't rest on what happened before. You can't rest on your family. You can't rest on your people. No wonder the first part of verse 4 says, restore us again. Restore us again. You might even say it this way, restore us again and again and again and again. Latter part of verse 4, put away your indignation toward us. Isn't that the ringing theme of the history of Israel? Lord, could you, could you do it one more time? We're, we're not making it. We're not surviving. 
And when the next country, the next civilization takes them into bondage, then it revives the need for revival. We need your help. Our people are hurting. We're not flourishing as our grandparents did. We need you. Verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? I mean, this, my friends, in our Christian context is a word to parents for their children, isn't it? We can't have intervening generations in which we fail to communicate and live the truth. We have to be diligent, consistent, forthright, loving, living illustrations of God's truth in our lives. And then we pray that our children will take it on to the next, their children, and the next. And sometimes when we have wayward children, and perhaps those wayward children have wayward children, no wonder it says, will you prolong your anger to all generations? You and I can fall prey to that, can't we? How many times have you prayed for the salvation of a young grandchild? Young as in 13, 15, 18. There's a book title that I think is very aptly given, aptly aptly named. You never stop being a parent. You never stop being a parent. I remember talking with a famous pastor's wife and she said, you know, I thought that my whole life as our kids were being raised was one giant prayer request. And then she said, and I assumed that once all of those kids were grown and gone, that my prayer life could settle down a little bit. And then I realized, oops, I now have grandchildren. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you're praying forever and a day for their salvation. Look at verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? I tell you what, my friends. You read your Old Testaments, and when you become familiar with this language... You're saying to yourself, this is as rock-solid truth as the New Testament. This can be as applicable to us as the New Testament. It's it's in one sense, one testament of God for the people of God so that we can pray this prayer too. Will you revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That's That's a great prayer request for your children and for your grandchildren. You want to be that stalwart in the faith. You want to be that matriarch, that patriarch. You want to lead your family in the paths of righteousness. And you want 
God to revive you, revive your kids, revive your grandkids and their kids and their grandkids so that a heritage of faithfulness can result. And then I love the first part of verse 7. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And what is the psalmist challenging us to sing? Show us your steadfast love, your covenant love. Hesed. That's the the covenant love of God. That's God's covenant with his people that he will bless them. And of course, someone's going to say, well then, as long as I'm born as an Israelite, I'm good. I got my free ticket. Just because I'm one of God's chosen. Well, I tell you, my friend, not all Israel is Israel. Each And every individual Israelite had to place consciously their faith in God. It was not that family plan. It was not just because you were born as an Israelite that you're automatically in. Sinners must seek God's way of salvation. And we would say it like this. You you put your kids to bed at night, and if you're like me, You're challenging them ever and always. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. You must depend on God. You must love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You must do what you must do to gain entrance into the kingdom. You must believe in Christ and only in Christ. Any any parent can do that. A pastor parent can do that. And every other parent can do that, and we must. This, this covenant love, this steadfast love, it's, it's mentioned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. God's faithful, loyal love. It's an amazing thing. No wonder the latter part of verse 7 says, grant us your salvation. Now, of course, it may be deliverance there. Perhaps they had come out of Babylon. Perhaps now it's the second or third or fourth generation. Perhaps it had been a long time since they've been in Babylon. And perhaps now there's a, there's a new kind of uh, fugitive fleeing by Israel. We don't know. Maybe they're saying, grant us deliverance, deliverance from the next marauding band. Uh, Deliver us from the clutches of our enemies. But perhaps this is also talking about spiritual salvation. I think it probably is for both. We need your loyal love. We need your covenant love. And we need it in the worst way. Isn't that, again, like Romans 5? Verse 12, we read earlier today, therefore justice, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We've got a sin problem. This is the sin problem of the ages. But verse 15 says, the free gift, that is salvation. Salvation. 
That's that idea here. Grant us your salvation. The free gift of salvation, verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if many died, many being all, through one man's trespass, who's the one man there? Adam. Through, through Adam's one tra- trespass, when he took of the fruit, when he plunged the whole human race into sin, it created sin, Adam's sin, and everyone who comes from the loins of Adam, which is every one of us, which brings trespass, sin. But the free gift, it's not like the trespass, because we have much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, which abounds for many. See how it's toggling back and forth, the one man, Adam, and his trespass, and the one man, Jesus Christ, and his grace. Verse 16, and the free gift, the free gift from Christ, is not like the result of that one man's sin, not Adam's sin, it's wholly different. For the judgment following one trespass, when Adam plunged the whole human race into sin, it brought condemnation. But the free gift, the free gift that Jesus Christ gave when he died on the cross for sinners like us, following many trespasses in the world, brought not condemnation, but justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam again, death reigned through that one man, and it certainly does, the death reign of spiritual death, eternal death, physical death, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. It just goes back and forth, back and forth. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's what Adam did. That's what he brought into the world. That's why we're affected as as he was. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Death for all men, and some are justified and receive life. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam again, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. And that's why he ends by saying, grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is forgiveness, forgiveness. This is salvation, and you must seek for it. You have to seek for it. You have to ask ask God to forgive you. And if there was any lesson that Israel needed to learn in the worst way, it was not to assume that simply because they were born into an Israelite family that they were in the kingdom. You don't get in the kingdom by physical birth. You get in the kingdom by believing in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John 1 starts out? Isn't this this why John 1 is in our Bibles to tell us unmistakably that you and I can't do it on our own just because we're born into some family? No. It tells us in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the privilege or the opportunity to become children of God who were born not of blood, 
not of blood, not of your, your family's inheritance, nor of the will of the flesh. You can't do it just by the will of your flesh. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, as it were, and say, I think I'll become a Christian, nor of the will of man. You, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it by your family. You can't do it by your strength. You can't do it by your power. You can't do it because you want to do it. It says all who receive him are that way because of God. Do you see that at the end? But of God. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, from God, of God. That's what you have to do. You have to seek it, this salvation, by and for and from God. And you have to keep in the generations preaching that same message. Nobody gets in by the family. Nobody gets in by any other way. Nobody gets in because you were a member of this church, that you walked an aisle, you signed a card, you gave money uh, to the Kiwanis Club, you, you were a great philanthropist, you, you, you are a good person, you, you are a person who God ought to want to have in his kingdom because of all of your, your great prowess. It's nothing like that at all. No wonder they're saying, restore us again. Please put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Prolong your anger to all generations? Is that what you're going to do? Will, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice? Please give us your covenant love. And God shows it. He demonstrates that love. How, did he, how does he do it? By giving you Christ. He's the only one offered for the world. Christ and Christ alone. There's no other way. John 14, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. This is the way. You have to go that way. It's the only way. God shows and demonstrates this in that he gave us Christ, and we have to seek it thirdly and last. God himself preaches salvation to sinners. God himself. <laughs> God himself preaches to sinners. I mean, this is so remarkable. God himself preaches to sinners? Yes, he does. Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God did this. God brought it. Don't you love those passages that say this, 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 sin, condemnation, judgment, but God. But God. Galatians. But at the right time, God sent forth his Son. Well, guess what? This is exactly what Psalm 85 is saying. Look at verses 8 to 13. This is, this is an amazing thing. This is what we call an oracle. An oracle. Like a, like a prophecy. Like a declaration. And in this psalm, we're being told things in verses 1 to 7 
about what Israel is saying, about what the people are saying, and what they're saying to God. And now, in verses 8 to 13, God shows up and he speaks. Notice what it says. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. God speaks. I've studied this a great deal. And there are amazing passages in the Scripture that say things like this. And God created the world by the spoken word. Right there in Genesis, about 15 times. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And then you go into other places, and it says, and he spoke a word, and this happened, and that happened. And sometimes it's very interesting that the Old Testament will say something like this, and God spoke the word, and then you look in the New Testament, and there's a reference to that same Old Testament text, and it doesn't say God spoke a word. It says, and Scripture says. Isn't that interesting? What it really means is this. When God speaks, the preacher speaks. When God declares, the preacher declares. Or the evangelist declares. Or the mom praying with her kids, reading them scripture, mom declares. Dad teaches. Dad proclaims. That's what we're doing when we teach them the scripture. That's what we're doing. And so Yahweh shows up. Verse 8, God the Lord, see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God the Lord, Yahweh will speak. And he does speak. And what does he say? He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Peace, shalom. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to bless you. Now, that's a whole lot better than I'm going to give you wrath and hot anger, right? I'm going to give you peace instead. But now here's the warning. Here's God, not only the preacher. Here's the speaker. Now he's the evangelist. What's the next verse? But let them not turn back to folly. That's an evangelistic word there, isn't it? This is, this is God the evangelist saying, I'm going to give peace to my people, to my saints, but I'm also warning the same group of people, do not turn back to folly. What is folly? I'll tell you what it is. It's a commitment to sin. It's used most often, I would think, to refer to idolatry. And do you have to read far at all in the history of Israel to find out that they continually constructed the ashram, the the high places, not the worship of Yahweh. God's preaching to his people here. This is an oracle. This is a... This is a prophetic announcement. This is, a, this is an oracle of a declaration. Sort of like the Proverbs, isn't it? 
I'm going to be seeking the people who want peace, and I'll give them peace, and the fools, I'll give them nothing but judgment. Why? Because they're fools. Because they're involved in all kinds of folly. Verse 9, surely his salvation, his spiritual salvation, his physical deliverance is near to those who what? Fear him. Fear the Lord. Holy, awe, healthy dread. We have to fear him. And if we do, glory will dwell in the land. There it is again. The idea of the people and the land. The land and the people. Do you want a favorable land, Yahweh says? Verse 1. You want a favorable land? You want glory to, to dwell in your land? What is glory there? Glory is his personal presence. I'll be with you. Remember Moses said, Lord, if you don't, if you don't lead us, I don't want to go. I have to know that you're going ahead of us. I have to know that you're leading us. This is God's personal presence, his glory. And he says, salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. It's inextricably linked to the people and the place. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. There's that word steadfast again. Steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love, hesed, and faithfulness. They meet. Oh, I wish we had time. We don't. But this is one of the most amazing statements in all of the the Old Testament. Steadfast love and faithfulness or truth. Emet is the Hebrew term. So hesed and emet. Steadfast love and faithfulness or truth meet. They meet together. You know, when sometimes people say, well, you know, that God of the Old Testament, vicious, bringing judgment, vengeance, fire. Oh, but that Jesus of the New Testament, holy and humble, Jesus never hurting a flea. And they set up this false dichotomy, don't they? This is saying, in our Old Testaments, in Psalm 85, steadfast love and truth meet. They meet. They meet in the same God who has the same two attributes, and they meet. This is the result of somebody who's saved who fears the Lord, steadfast love, the hesed love of God, the covenant loyal love of God, and his faithfulness, his truth, they meet, and then this righteousness and peace kiss each other. Is that beautiful? That is so beautiful. Righteousness, that's the rightness of God. That's, that's God dealing in righteousness with rightness. That's who he is. He can't be anything other than that. He's the righteous God, and he does right things, and he does them in the right way. And then peace, shalom. There it is again. He will will speak peace to his people, and he will have righteousness and peace kiss 
each other. And then he goes on to talk about faithfulness again. Truth, verse 11. Faithfulness or truth springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. I think that probably is telling us that truth comes up and righteousness comes down. In other words, God's got it all covered. He's got it all covered. Do you see those four grand words that are pregnant with meaning? Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. No wonder verse 12 says, The Lord, Yahweh, will give what is good. He'll give what is good. Have we not been seeing that? Psalm 84. He will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. He's all about good. Being good. Giving good. Giving good things. And then verse 12, the end of it, our land will yield its increase. Third time land is mentioned, right? Do you see what's happening? If the people are righteous, God blesses the land with righteousness. Fertility, prosperity, abundance. Now, this is not the charismatic version of today. You just speak something into existence. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that when the people honor their God and serve their God, he in turn withholds no good thing, including giving them a land of plenty, a land of increase, a land of of yield. And then verse 13 I think sums it all up. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now, who's, who's speaking here? God is speaking. All the way from the beginning of verse 8, now to the end, verse 13. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Well, God the Lord is saying in verse 13, righteousness will go before me. That's what I think the interpretation of that verse is. Righteousness will go before me, before him, before the Lord God. And what will that righteousness do? It'll make my footsteps away. Clear the path. Lay out the right road. I tell you, this is an amazing psalm. This is, this is a psalm that speaks of steadfast love and faithfulness, and righteousness, and peace, and God provides a way for you and for me to walk in such a way. God has clearly shown, he's clearly demonstrated his love for sinners. He's offering his covenant love. He's offering faithfulness. He's offering righteousness. He's offering peace Yet sinners must seek those things. They must hold their hands out for God's way of salvation and not remain in their life of folly. This is an evangelistic psalm. And if 
my people will humble themselves and pray. Sinners will hear God himself preaching to them this steadfast love and faithfulness. They will meet and righteousness and peace will kiss each other, thus showing and demonstrating that Yahweh, the Lord God, will bestow everything that is good and righteous and will make yours and my footsteps away because of his footsteps the very eternal presence of God himself. We're going to have him. He's our prize. Dane Ortland, in his new Psalms devotional, it's a wonderful little devotional entitled, In the Lord I Take Refuge, just came out here in 2021. Helps us conclude the message of Psalm 85 when he writes these words. God has proven that he will not let such a prayer, a prayer like Psalm 85, go unanswered. How did he prove it? By showing in the fullness of time exactly how righteousness and peace would kiss each other. He sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law and in so doing, provide true and lasting peace for any who humbles himself enough to receive it. Jesus has wiped away any reason for God to withhold his renewing grace from you. And I'm so grateful he has. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for providing the righteousness that allowed your own footsteps to make a way for ours. We are so grateful. Where would we be without you, Lord? We thank you for the privilege and the honor to be called your children and that you've given us favor and restoration and forgiveness and atonement and you've taken away your wrath and your hot anger and you've given us salvation, salvation for those who fear you. And you've declared it. This is your oracle. This is your word. You're, you're the preacher. You're declaring it. You've provided the Lord Jesus as the very embodiment of covenant love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. They've provided the way through Christ. These are the great benefits. Oh, I pray that there's no one here who doesn't have a right relationship with you, Lord, and that they would pillow their head tonight and thank you once again for your covenant love. Thank you for your truth. And thank you that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The wrath of God has been assuaged by peace through our Lord Jesus Christ and righteousness will reign forever. Thank you so much. May we pass this along to our children and theirs, and yet even theirs. 
And Lord, if we are in need of salvation for generations to come, even after we're gone, may our people, our own flesh and blood, reach out to you and put away their folly and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Oh, may it be so, so that we would have the glorious reunion in eternity future of seeing our own people bound for heaven, praising the Savior all the day long. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.